In Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 16. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man... And him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return." But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. All right, well, I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're going to continue our study through the book of Mark. As we look at verses 14 through 29 this morning. So Mark chapter 9 verses 14 through 29, as we talk about a miraculous healing that Jesus performs. He cast out a demon of all things in this passage. What a miraculous and amazing, amazing thing. And what we want to see in that is, is something that I think gets pointed out really well if you're, if you're reading along and gentle and lowly, um, something that we've been working through in our community groups together. I wanted to read just one quote and kind of bring it out there from uh, chapter 2. Uh, the author quotes Jürgen Moltmann, and he says this, The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. So he's talking about the healings of Jesus and what they point us to. They restore creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are on, they're the only true natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. 
See, what he's saying there is not so much that Jesus isn't powerful or that he's not doing something that's impossible. Of course, Jesus is doing something that is only possible through him. What he's saying is the world that we live in, our experience that we have right now, is not God's original intention, the, the, his will of desire when he created the world. When sin came into the world, it made things what he calls unnatural. The fact that demons have this kind of authority in this world to possess a little boy is not something that God desires for the world. Believe it or not, God has desired for us to live in a perfect world where there is no sickness and is no disease. There are no demon possessions. There aren't those kinds of things. And when Jesus comes and he heals people all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is giving us a picture of what God always intended the world to be like and ultimately what the world will be like in the new heaven and the new earth. Each miracle that Jesus performs points to something that will one day be an eternal reality for all believers. One day, all Christians will live in a place where there is no sickness. There, are, there is no more pain. There are no more disappointments. There's no more despair. There's no more demons possessing people. That's what he's pointing to one day because what we want to see is that every healing that Jesus does is a temporary kind of healing. And here's what I mean by that. Everybody Jesus healed on his time of earth, where are they now? They died. (laughs) Everyone. Some of them weren't even believers. We, We see lots of things that happened where Jesus heals people and they don't follow him. And so, but what I'm, what I'm just trying to say is it's so important that we, when we walk into these passages about healing, that we remember that they're a, they're a picture, a foreshadowing of an eternal healing that is coming for every true believer. Every true believer, that song that we sang, is going to be there with God forever, always. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness. That's what these healings point us to. That's what Jesus was trying to do. He's showing that he is the one who's coming to establish and make everything right. (laughs) And as he does that, and as he does that, what we want to see is the way that we partake, even in these partial, this temporary kind of healing thing that we experience here in Mark chapter 9 as we read it, and eventually that ultimate healing that will last forever and always and all eternity, the way that we partake in that is by faith. Faith is a vehicle that God uses uh, to put us in Christ, and that's how we experience these things. And that's what I want us to see as we walk through this passage this morning, is that Jesus gives faith. Jesus is the one who gives us faith, and we will see that as we walk through the passage because he's the source of faith, the helper of faith, and he even gives us a means to grow in faith, and that means is by prayer. And that's what we want to look at this morning as we look at the entire passage. And I think you'll see that even as you, we read through it here this first time. And so first run through, join me in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And I'll read the entire thing. And then just like every Sunday, we'll walk through our passage. Verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. 
So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And we had entered the house. His disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let us pray before we jump in. Father, I love you. You're so good. You're kind. You're gracious. You're compassionate. You have compassion on us. You do help us, and you are able. Help us this morning as we look at this passage to grow and increase in faith by understanding that your son, Jesus, that you, God, are the source and helper of our faith. You are the ones that we must connect ourselves to, root ourselves, and anchor ourselves in. And then and only then will we increase in faith. We cannot muster faith up on our own, but God, we need it as a precious and sweet gift from you. And Lord, as we seek to cling to you, I praise you that the good news of the gospel is that you cling to us. Help us open our eyes to the passage and see the goodness and the glory of God as being the giver of faith. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, Jesus, if you can remember from last week, was coming down from a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And on that mountain, the transfiguration occurred, and Jesus appeared in all of his radiance and glory, and a cloud came and declared that he is the Son of God and that these men were to listen to him. So now they're heading down this mountain, and much like when Moses was coming down from the mountain of the Ten Commandments and he came to a stir and a problem where the people of God were serving false idols and worshiping false calves, these, these golden calves, if you can remember that from the book of Exodus. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John walk down this mountain after this amazing thing, and they find the crowds of people arguing with one another. And they come, and there's this argument going on, and they're not really sure what's happening, but the crowd and the disciples are together, and it seems like they've gotten in an argument with these scribes. And so they walk up, and Jesus asks, what, what is going on here? What is happening? And, and even before that, as the people see Jesus, they're totally amazed by him. They're amazed at, at what he does and, and how he, he makes this, this happen. 
And, and I think what we see that is the amazement isn't so much because of the transfiguration. I think that has worn off, uh, unlike Moses. And I, w- and I would just say that because, well, Jesus commanded them not to tell anybody. It'd be kind of weird if he showed up glowing still. That seems like a weird command to make. But that's what he did. And, and I think it's one of the things that we have to remember. We're jumping into the book of Mark nine chapters in. Why are these people amazed by him? Why are they running to him? Because for now nine chapters, Jesus has been coming and he's been healing the sick. He's been making the blind to see. He's been casting out demons. He's been doing these incredible and amazing things, teaching with all authority. And the people are looking to him and they're saying, there he is. His reputation precedes him. And so they run to him and they're amazed by him. And so he asked, what are you guys arguing about with them? Someone for the crowd, who ended up to be being a father, tells them that he has brought his son to the disciples because the spirit is is making him have these seizures. When this evil spirit comes upon his son, it makes him have these horrible, violent, terrible seizures where he foams in the mouth and grinds his teeth. He's mute and unable to speak. He said, I asked your disciples to cast it out and they couldn't do it. And apparently this has caused this argument, whether that is the scribes finally calling out, see, you're not as great as you think you are. We don't really know, but that's caused this problem and this argument. And as that happens, and it comes to light that they're unable to heal this, this boy and cast out this demon, Jesus cries out, and he gives a, a hard saying, a hard rebuke. And he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? See, Jesus doesn't hold back. Jesus pronounced what is, what's true, even when it maybe doesn't feel very good. And Jesus is telling them, here is the problem. Your problem is your lack of faith. And it's hard to tell is he, when he talks about this generation, he's talking about the crowd, or is he talking about the disciples themselves? I don't know. It was a toss-up between all the research I did this week. I just know this. Somebody is faithless. They don't have the faith that, that, that they need to see this happen. And Jesus is, is coming to them and he's calling them out and he's saying, listen, you need to have faith because faith is the way that we partake in the things that Jesus is, is giving us. Faith is the way that we connect ourselves to Christ. Again, it is the vehicle that we do it. But I want us to see is while, even though Jesus tells them the truth and he cries out to them and says, you faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? And, and which I think is just an expression of the reality of Jesus being the only real true believer. He's the only one who really gets what's going on in all of this. He's the only one who really sees it. And he, and he knows that his time is, is running short. Remember, this is, the book is taking a turn. He's heading toward the cross now. Say, how long am I going to be with you? You've got to get this. You've got to see this faith. But here's what's so amazing to me about Jesus is he looks at these people and he's seeing that it's their fault that this thing doesn't happen. They're the ones who lack faith. And he doesn't say, so figure it out. You faithless generation, go get yourself some faith and then come back to me. He doesn't look at them and say, you faithless generation, what's wrong with you? Haven't you seen everything that I've done? You know, you just, you just need to believe harder. Try harder. Do more. He doesn't do that. What does he say? After he says this true thing and he tells them, this is your problem, and he cries out, he says, bring him to me. What amazing thing. See, when Jesus sees us in our pain and even in our faithlessness, Jesus' response to us is bring him to me. Come to me. 
And I think that's a huge thing that we see, right? We see in our world sometimes maybe a false teacher claims that they have some kind of supernatural ability from God, isn't able to pull it off, and then they say, well, you don't have enough faith. It's your fault. And they would even use like a text like this to say that. And they keep people at arm's length, and they say like, you're the problem. You need to go try harder. You need to do more. You need to... But they're not acting like Jesus in that moment. Jesus sees these people, sees their lack of faith, and says, come to me. Bring that boy to me. I'll care. You see, in John 15, Jesus talks about how he is the vine and we're the branches and how we need to abide in him to be latched onto him if we long to produce good fruit. And in that, and in producing good fruit, what he means is, is works of righteousness, these kinds of things. He's saying, you can't do these things apart from me. In fact, in John fifteen five, he says that. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So in John 15, Jesus is teaching that when we're apart from him, we can do nothing. Later in this passage, he's going to teach the opposite. That when we have faith and believe in him, we can do anything. There's no neutral ground here. Jesus is saying is by faith, if we have faith in him, we can do anything. But if we don't have faith in him, you can't do anything. We can't, we can't do anything. We do nothing. That's really extreme, and he kind of shows that, but, but I think that's what we see is, is Jesus is saying, he's the source of faith. You faithless generation, you're not getting it. Listen, I'll show you. Bring him to me. He doesn't just walk away and say, well, I guess they didn't get it. I'm out of here. But he continues to bear with them. He continues to love them. He continues to show them. And he says, bring that boy to me. <laughs> and so what do we have to do? What do we look at? And as we look at this passage, we take away from that? What, how can we apply this to our life? Well, our application point is that. Bring your pain and your doubt to Jesus. I think so often, it's and particularly in our faithlessness, because we know that faith is like the one thing God requires. When we lack faith, we're like, oh, I can't go to him now. It's like going to my parents and they know that I didn't do the one thing that I was supposed to do. But Jesus isn't like that. He's not that kind of a parent. Jesus looks to us and he loves us and he says, come to me, bring your pain, bring your doubt to me. If you're struggling and doubting in your faith and you're not sure what's happening, don't run away from Jesus. Run toward him. It's his pleasure to bring you in because he is the source of faith. He is the one who gives faith to begin with. And so we desperately need that. As the source of faith, we see that when we doubt, is not only is he the source of it, but he's also our helper. See, he alone helps us in our unbelief. And that's what I want us to see in the next seven verses. Picking up in verse 20, and they said, And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It is often cast him into a fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. They bring the boy to Jesus. And as they bring it, the Spirit sees him, and immediately it starts convulsing the boy. And this has actually been happening throughout the book of Mark. When these demons see Jesus, they're the ones crying out, Get away from us, Son of God. They're the ones spoiling it for everyone, telling it, He's the Messiah, He's the one. And they see it. One important thing, though, for us to remember, because in the book of James, we are told that even the demons believe and tremble. Even the demons believe and tremble and are afraid of God. And that's what we're seeing happen here. These demons, they see him and they send this boy into a convulsion. They fight back, if you will. But their belief, their understanding who God is, is different than the kind of belief that we have. That's what James is trying to teach us. That our belief brings about life change. It changes us internally. It's different than what demons believe. It's not just a sheer acknowledgement that there is a God. It's the submission that he is my God, that he's my king, and that I have a love for him. And that's the kind of belief and faith that I think Jesus is talking about when he talks to this father. And so as it convulses this boy and it rolls him about, Jesus asks this incredibly compassionate and kind question. You can think almost like a physician when you take your, your baby to the doctor like I've had to do in the last little bit. What do they ask? How long has this been happening? (laughs) They want to know. They want to prescribe it. They want to figure out what's going on because they want to care for your child. And Jesus, to care for this man's son who's convulsing, says, how long has this been happening? And this opens up the father's heart. It opens him up and he just spills out everything Jesus from childhood. And Jesus, sometimes it throws him into fire and water. It's it's like it's trying to kill him, Jesus. If you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. From your reading in Gentle and Lowly, you've learned a little bit about that word, compassion. If you haven't read yet, I'm going to spoil it for you. This particular word, it's the same word that he talks about in the book. It, it comes from the Greek word that would mean bowels. What he's saying when we talk about compassion is, is, is what the Greeks realized is when you would have pity, when you would see somebody in a difficult situation, and I'm sure you've experienced it in your life, you feel it in your gut. You feel the empathy for them. You feel that sympathy. It's a guttural kind of reaction and response. And this father, as he watches his son convulse, and Jesus asks him this question, is looking to Jesus and he's saying, Jesus, will you just feel for me? Will you feel it in your gut? Will you have compassion on me? And will you help us? If you can do anything, Jesus, please do it. And he's appealing to the mercy of God. The mercy of Jesus. Jesus who is filled with compassion. Jesus, though, hears this man and we know that he's going to be filled with compassion. We know he's going to help. We know the end of the passage. He catches something in what the man says, though. In this moment of extreme pressure and heat, as he's being squeezed, his heart is revealed Because out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Because this man says, if you can do anything. See, this extreme, intense circumstance is being used to bring out and bring to life a faulty part of this man's faith. A part that is still being held back. 
And Jesus, because he's so kind and so compassionate, and yeah, he's going to take care of that physical need, but he's also caring about this father. He looks at him and he says, if you can. And he calls him out. If I can? Who do you think you're talking to? If. All things are possible for those who believe. To which the father looks at him and cries, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't know any Christian who can read this and not resonate with this father. All of us have been there. Yeah, I believe, I believe, I believe, but oh, there's these parts in my heart that are still being sanctified and worked on. There's these parts of me that are still being changed. There's these parts of me, and if I'm just honest, sometimes, God, you call me to do something, and it makes me really uncomfortable, and I'm just not sure you're really going to pull through. So if you can, God, get me through this. And God says, if I can. What I want to suggest is God uses every ailment and every difficulty in your life to make you more like himself. That doesn't always look like a miraculous healing. In this moment, there's more happening on the, on the deeper thing than what we see on the surface. On the surface, the problem seems to be this boy has an unclean spirit. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's a deeper problem within this father. And I'm going to use this moment to bring that out of him got a little bit of faithlessness still in you dad and i can see it and it's coming out of your mouth when you're really pressed and squeezed by life's difficulties and circumstances but because we have such a compassionate and such a merciful savior he addresses it (laughs) and he gets this man to do what he needs to do which is cry out for help jesus will you help me and we know that jesus does he does just that He helps him. One of my favorite hymns is called He Will Hold Me Fast. There's the lyrics up to the first two stanzas on the the screen. I just want to read them to you because I want you to hear them because I think, again, in the same way I resonate with this dad as somebody who believes yet knows he needs help in his unbelief. I just wanted to read these lyrics. It says, When I fear, my faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. I love that hymn. It's such a helpful hymn in my life because if I am honest, there have been so many times that I'm like this dad, this father who's watching his child go through this difficult thing and I think I don't know if I can make it I don't know that I'm going to make it but oh what good news that Jesus is holding on to me when I can't hold on to him any longer he is promising I am holding on to you In the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of your moments of crisis of faith, what we want to see is that Jesus is holding on. He's not leaving us. He's not forsaking us. What does he do in the passage right after that? Jesus, he he cries out to help his unbelief, and Jesus sees the crowd coming to him, and I think just not wanting to make a spectacle or draw a bunch of attention to himself, he rebukes the unclean spirit. 
He answers this man's request. And if faithlessness was the problem and unbelief was what was keeping it back, when the man cries out for help, help my unbelief, it seems to me that Jesus is answering that prayer, not just in casting out the demon, but the faith that the man needed to see this happen. Jesus is answering that prayer. He is helping this man's unbelief and then he performs this miracle and casts out this demon. And it convulses him again terribly and it came out. And there's this one last little thing I think that shows us that they're still doubting and they're still struggling because the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he's dead. Jesus and his father are talking about who am I? Who, if I can, who do you think I'm talking to? And there's still people thinking, you are the kind of guy who's going to try to cast out a demon and kill a little kid. And that's not what's happening. Jesus doesn't kill this little kid. But rather, sometimes in life, things get a little worse before they get better. And Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. <laughs> now, I don't know if this kid was dead or not, and Jesus rose him up. I'm not really sure, but the language is really similar. And here's what we do know, is that when they're coming down from the Mount Transfiguration, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody until what? Until I rise from the dead. And the disciples say, you're raised from the dead. What does that mean? And then the thing that happens immediately later is Jesus provides an object lesson. This is what it looks like to raise up from the dead. Whether or not the boy is literally dead or not, or just catatonic, or just in some kind of temporary coma, and Jesus raises him up, I think he is showing them, you starting to see what I'm talking about, guys? Huh? I am going to raise from the dead. Watch my miraculous power. When everybody else thinks he's dead, it's over. There's nothing else going on. Jesus says, I'm going to lift you up, and you will rise. And the boy arose. Because what's going to happen? What is Mark pointing us to all throughout? We as Christians who've read the Bible or heard the gospel before, we know what happens. Jesus dies. And there are three days where even his disciples think it's over. It's done. And then he raises from the dead. Jesus is teaching them about faith in the middle of this moment about this demon-possessed little boy and he's pointing to ultimately what they're going to have to put their faith in, that he is the God who can conquer death. That's what he's telling them. Again, everything else is a temporary healing, but it's just a manifestation. It's just shedding a little light. It's just giving a little foreshadowing. I'm going to conquer the last enemy and the last enemy is death. Faith is going to bring about the resurrection. And if you have faith in me, you one day will be resurrected too, forever and always. And nothing will stop that from happening. See, we need to see that. And when we see that reality, we see the truth that Jesus is calling us to have a faith that is going to overlap everything and overcome everything. It then enables us what we're able to apply this morning is that in the midst of our unbelief, we can cry out to Jesus. See, when you're struggling in your faith, when you're struggling in those moments, when you are having that crisis, you need to cry out to Jesus. You need to be like this dad. You need to say, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's okay to acknowledge your faults. It's okay to acknowledge where you're struggling. God loves that. He wants you to do that. We'll talk about that today in our community group and on Thursday night in your community group as we discuss the book. Jesus loves to do this. He loves to heal us. He wants you to come to you, 
wants you to come to him with, his, with your ailments and your difficulties. He longs for it. So cry out to Jesus in the midst of your unbelief. Because when you're doing that, you're participating in one of the greatest means of increasing in faith. That moment of honesty with God is what it looks like to actually pray. And that's what I want to close with this morning, is that prayer is the means of faith. Mark 9, 28, it says, And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In the book of Matthew, he actually gives a different answer. In the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verse 20, it should be on the screen here, they ask him the same question, and Jesus, he says, and he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. <laughs> now, in your, if you have ESV like me, what you'll then notice if you look really, really close is it goes from verse 20 to verse 22. And you're like, where in the world is verse 21? So in some, some manuscripts, but not the earliest ones, there is another verse there where Jesus says, and this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And in some really old, man, in some other manuscripts, but not the oldest ones, in Mark 9, it also includes the word and fasting. So while we can talk about manuscripts and all that fun stuff in a whole other sermon, not to get off on a tangent, what I want to say is this, is we want to bring these things together. What has been the issue the entire passage? Faith. Faith has been the issue the entire passage. In Matthew, he's explicitly, why couldn't we cast it out? He said, you have little faith. In Mark, he's already called them the faithless generation. He's already told them you're faithless. He's already called out this dad, what's going on with your unbelief? And then we get here, he says, why can't we cast it out? And Jesus says, this kind comes out by prayer. And what happens is I think a lot of times, unfortunately, we allow Hollywood to kind of like influence the way we look at this. And what I mean is we look at this and we're like, this kind, oh, it must be a special kind of demon. It's got to come out by prayer. I don't think that's happening. I think you're missing the point. The point of the passage has been what? Faith, faith, faith. Not some kind of weird, ritualistic, specific way to perform exorcisms. We just don't see that in the Bible. We don't see in the Bible at any point people getting holy water, drawing pentagrams, and lighting candles. Like, that's not a thing. That became a thing when the exorcism of Emily Rose came out. And then Christians somehow jumped on that and used that, seriously, started using that to interpret the Bible. That's not in the Bible. It's just not there. It, it isn't there. He's not talking about some kind of special, weird, like, you know, call in a priest and get the demon out of them kind of thing. What is, what is he talking about? He's talking about faith. Every demon exercised in the New Testament is exercised by faith in the authority of Jesus. That's what it is. There's no special thing that has to be done. There's no hoops to jump through. It's having faith in Jesus. And so I think when we put these passages together, which is what the Gospels are meant to do, we're supposed to read them holistically, putting them together, I think what we start to see is that prayer is the means of faith. When Jesus is saying this kind only comes out by prayer, Jesus is saying, listen, guys, prayer is how you're going to increase in faith. If you don't have little faith, you'll be able to do this thing. But because you lack faith in me, 
You were unable to accomplish this thing that he had commissioned them specially to do earlier in the book of Mark. Early in the book of Mark, he had given them the authority to go and cast out demons. And now they're not able to do it. And Jesus is saying, yeah, because you're trying to do it on your own authority, your own power, and faith in yourself. I believe he's calling them to say, you've got to do this in my authority and faith in me. And that's what we want to see from this passage, which is an amazing thing for us. So what does that mean about prayer? What is prayer in the life of the Christian? Prayer is God's ordained means for you to increase in faith. Because if Jesus is the source of faith and the helper in our faith, then prayer is how we ask for that help. It's how we plug into the source. We want to go directly to him. In our moments of weakness and doubt, we want to run to Jesus and do what Jesus would have us do. Prayer and fasting are not ways to impress God and then he blesses you with something extra. Prayer and fasting are simply ways to get to know God. And when we know him and see him for all that he is, he increases our faith through a wonderful and gracious gift. That's what prayer and fasting do. God is not more impressed with you and does not love you anymore when you pray or fast. God loves you just as much as he possibly could right now, and he could not love you any less. You're his child. But we pray and we fast and we do these things. Why? Because we love him, and we want to commune with him and spend time with him. A theologian in the time of the Reformation named John Calvin, if you've ever seen a picture of him, he's got a long pointy beard. He says this about prayer and faith. To know God as the sovereign disposer of all good, inviting us to present our request and yet not to approach or ask him. So he's saying, if we're saying that we know God is the giver of all good things and has invited us to present our request to him, to not do that, we are so far from availing us. Meaning, we're so, like, that is the most unhelpful thing ever. That's what he's trying to say. To not ask God for things when he's told you to ask him for something is unhelpful to you. And then he gives this illustration. That it were just as one were told of a treasure were to allow it to remain buried in the ground. Hence the apostle, to show that faith unaccompanied by prayer to God cannot be genuine, states this to the order. As faith springs from the gospel, so by faith our hearts are framed to call upon the name of God. And he's talking about Romans ten fourteen there, where it talks about how will they call upon the name of the Lord if they do not hear? How will they hear if they do not have a preacher? And what he's trying to say there, he's, he's trying to say, your first prayer as a Christian is when you're calling out to God to save you from sin. That's our prayer. That's our first prayer ever that any of us have. We call out to the Lord, save me. I recognize who you are. And what Calvin is trying to say is, you can't do that without faith. You can't call out in that genuine way without faith. And so he's saying, faith is required for every prayer after. And to not have faith, to not exercise prayer, is like being told there's treasure here and saying, yeah, I don't want to dig for it. Prayer is like the shovel that God has given you to access the treasure. He has marked it with an X, given you the shovel, and said, go dig. We have to employ the instrument. We have to employ the tool and dig deep for the treasure. But don't miss this. The treasure is not what we get when we ask God for things. The treasure is God himself. 
The treasure is Jesus. When we pray, when we run to the Lord in prayer, what we get first and foremost is more of Jesus. And that is an amazing and a beautiful thing. Most Christians I talk to, including myself, would be honest and say, I struggle to pray. I don't know what that looks like. What we want to see is I think we struggle to pray because we don't really embrace what prayer is. Prayer is the invitation to go to the God of the universe and spend time with him and ask him. So what do we need to do? We need to take advantage of the blood blot privilege of prayer. You can pray for one reason and one reason only, because Jesus died for your sins. Your prayers as an unholy person would never be heard by a holy God except this. Jesus intercedes for you. You get to go straight to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will hear your prayers because Jesus has made a way. That what a privilege we have been given for those in Jesus. I'll close with one last illustration. I always fear when I, when I preach a sermon like this that it's like, oh, I'm going to go pray for a new car, right? And that kind of thing. And, and what I just want to say is, is I just want to encourage you to pray for the greater things. Ask God for the greater gifts. It'd be like this. Elon Musk is currently, I think, it keeps going back and forth with all the COVID stuff, but I think he's currently the richest man in the world. He owns, if you don't know who Elon Musk is, he's a guy who's, who owns uh, SpaceX, so he's trying to like put a colony on Mars and all this craziness stuff. He's the guy who also owns the Boring Company, not to be confused, like uninteresting, like boring, like they bore tunnels. And, and then the other thing that he owns is Tesla. You can think of Tesla cars. I think sometimes when we pray and we ask God for things, it would be like if I told you, Elon Musk told me that you could go and ask him for it anything. You can ask Elon Musk for anything, and he said he'll give it to you. And you come back, and you say, I asked for a Tesla. And I would say, you fool. You fool. You don't go to the richest man on the planet and ask him for a Tesla. You ask him for Tesla, the whole company. You get as many cars as you want. You become rich forever and ever and ever. You asked for a $40,000 car when you talk to the richest person on the planet? Are you crazy? What a missed opportunity. You were a fool. And I think that's what our prayer life looks like. We get to go to the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and we ask for temporal things. And I say that knowing this. I say that, listen, I don't know where I'm going to live in come December. My housing will run out. And I ask God for a new house. I pray for that. I pray that God will open up that door for us. I'm not faulting you for praying those things. I used to, when I was in sales, I used to pray over specific deals with my bosses. Lord, if it's your will, you want to bless us with this one, that'd be really great. And listen, we saw God answer some pretty amazing things. I am not afraid to ask God for any material thing, but make no mistake. Make no mistake, all of that will burn. All of it's going to burn. It's not the greater thing. It's not. We all have real needs, and we should take them before the Lord. Some of us need more income. 
Some of us need a place to live. Some of us need a new vehicle. Some of us need, I get that. Ask boldly in faith that the Lord would provide for your needs. But more than that, know that when you're doing that, you have a kind Father who loves you, but you're asking for a Tesla to the richest God person in the universe. Ask for the eternal things. Ask for more faith. Ask for more wisdom. Ask for more love, compassion, grace, kindness, patience, gentleness. God, make me more like you. Help me love my neighbor. Help me show what I'm supposed to do. Because listen, that stuff is going to last forever. The Bible teaches us that when we get to the new heaven and new earth, that everyone will be full. Meaning, you, you will experience all joy, all peace, and all goodness. But the Bible also teaches us that the measure that you have measured with is what will be given to you. It's a pastor named John Piper, and he would explain it like this. He said, it's like everyone will stand on a seashore and if, and if an ocean, an endless ocean, could represent all the joy that would be filled, we will all be allowed to cast our bucket into that ocean for all of eternity and experience every ounce of joy we can get out of it. Meaning everybody will feel the fullness of the capacity of joy. But the reality is, is when Jesus talks about good works here and sowing into the kingdom of God, it not investing where moth and rust will destroy, but rather in the kingdom of God, I think he's teaching you can increase the size of your bucket. So the fullness of joy is full, but your capacity to experience can grow. You are exercising spiritual muscle here to then enjoy in all eternity with God. Seek the greater things. We don't want to just pray to be CEO. We want to pray to be servant of the king. The first shall be last and the last shall become first. We want to see that. We want to embrace it. We don't want to be afraid to move into people's mess and difficulty to the scary parts of life because we have little faith. And in that, while the temporal blessing might not be there, we aren't increasing our cup for the eternal blessings that are promised. Everybody will have fullness of joy, but your capacity to experience joy is impacted by faithfulness here. And what I want to encourage you is to grow in faith. Yeah, there are people who will just make it in by the skin of their teeth. But man, I want to go before God and say, good job, good faith, come enter my rest. And when I come it's the kind of place I want to be because I've spent my whole life training, preparing for what it looks like to worship God for eternity. I love the things that God loves. That's what's going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. The things that God loves. And that's what we want to increase in our, our faith. That's what we want to increase in our hearts. It's not some kind of prosperity, name it and claim it thing. We want to say, oh, I am built to last. Because you are. As a Christian, you're going to last forever. And God is saying, you'll enter into his rest and enjoy him to the absolute fullness forever and all time. And we want to live preparing for that. Remembering that these temporal blessings 
And I've got a lot of them. I'm like the, you know, I, God has blessed me with my kids. I was, I had a crappy day like a couple of days ago. And I was just laying there and Judah came over and he's playing with me. And I'm just sitting there thinking, wow, God, you love me so much. Three years ago, all I wanted was a kid. And you brought this little boy into my life and I love him so much. He is God's manifestation of goodness to me over and over and over again. And then Vera comes crawling over and just slobbers all over me. And it's kind of gross, but I love that little girl. Oh, and then Simon's over there. It's just crazy. I'm not saying God won't give us blessings here, but what I'm saying is they're preparing you for something better, so much better. Don't get caught running the rat race of the American dream. Pursue the better things because that's what faith will enable you to do. Let's pray. Father, we love you and I, and I want to boldly ask for things in this world that you want to bless us with. Boldly ask for times like this that you would eradicate coronavirus. That this would be over and that you would push it away, God. That you would enable us to go back to what seems to be more effective ministry. Less quarantine and difficulty that comes with that. But God, I also know that you use things like coronavirus and all the difficult circumstances of my life in the same way you use it in this Father's life. You use it to show us the weaknesses of our faith. You show us to show us the weaknesses of our own heart. And you call that and you draw it out to the surface. And you love us so much that we're able to go to you and cry out, oh, I believe there is a flaw. Lord, help my unbelief. Help me grow. Help us do that, to run to you and seek the greater gifts of love, faith, and hope. Things that will never perish, never fade. They'll help us increase in joy. God, we love you, and we ask this all in your name.